Well, this morning we are going to conclude our sermon series, which we've been in for the latter half of the summer, called God Our Refuge, Finding and Delighting the God Who Saves Us. It's been uh, my hope that in looking at these, the first few psalms in the Psalter, uh, that we would be reminded, uh, uh, perhaps for the millionth time, or perhaps even discovering for the very first time, the beauty and the value of the psalms. And we as a church would make it a habit or a practice or maybe best said, a daily delight to take up the psalms uh, in our lives. The psalms are the poetry and the prayer book and the song book of the church. They tell the epic deeds of a living God. They celebrate God's faithfulness in the past. They give us a hope for the future because the psalms, as do all the scriptures, ultimately point us to Jesus. And our hope is that it, uh, in taking up the psalms and meeting us, in ev- the psalms would meet us in every circumstance and ultimately help us find our way home to God who is our refuge, to God who is our rock and our salvation. So as we conclude uh, this series, we're going to look at Psalm 11, but we're also going to look at account of Jesus with his disciples in Matthew chapter 14. Now these two passages, they're not really directly related. It's not like Peter uh, quotes Psalm 11 as he's walking on the water. It would be awesome for the sake of this sermon if he did, but he doesn't. Um, But that's part of the point that I want to make this morning. See, this is the point of the year where we reflect upon and seek to understand the nature and the mission of the church and what it means to follow Jesus. What is the mission of the church in general? And for us at Central specifically, what does it mean for us to follow after him? So many of our ministries are gearing back up after a summer hiatus, and we want to be asking, what does it mean for us to exist for the sake, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of the world? How are we to serve and labor and sacrifice out of love of God and love of our neighbor and the city? And Matthew 14, that the passage we're going to look at there, I think gives us a key insight into the nature of the calling of the church. And Psalm 11, and all the Psalms really, guide us into becoming the kind of disciples that Jesus is gathering to himself and sending out, sending out into the world. In other words, Matthew 14 shows us why we need the Psalms, any and all the Psalms, which is why it is worth our time and energy and attention to always be meditating on the Psalms. So this morning we're going to give our attention first to the gospel reading in Matthew 14 and then uh, to Psalm 11. And just briefly for the sake of context, this passage in Matthew is just after Jesus feeds the 5,000. But even in the larger context, which I think is really important to understand the full meaning of this passage, we need to see that this passage that we're about to read is in the context of a larger and more uh, very tragic and ominous event in Jesus' ministry, and that's the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's death casts a shadow over all of Matthew 14. Jesus gets news of his cousin's, cousin's death, and he wants to be alone, but the crowds are following him everywhere, and the disciples so desperately need to be with Jesus at this point in their lives, at this point in, the, in their ministry. I don't think you can overestimate just how confused and bewildered the disciples are at this point and at this moment. They're not ready to navigate the complexity of the world or the complexity of Jesus' kingdom by themselves. They need to be with Jesus. They need to be as close to Jesus, hearing his voice, being in his bodily presence. They need to be as near to Jesus as possible. And so they are unprepared and ill-equipped to do it on their own without Jesus. And here, as we'll see, is exactly what happens. They have to do this without Jesus. The disciples find themselves in a storm without Jesus. Okay, that's the context. Let's uh, read Matthew chapter 14, 22 to 33, and then we'll read Psalm 11. 
Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way off from the, a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. And do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now Psalm 11. To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string and shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, desperately needing to hear your word. Some of us are overwhelmed with the coming week and year, knowing what lies in store. Some of us have fallen uh, God into an, apath an apathy, a boredom that we simply cannot shake. Some of us find ourselves in a storm that we never asked to be in and cannot seem to navigate our way out of. No matter where we find ourselves this morning, oh God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. That in your word and in your truth and by the power of your spirit, you would show up and reveal to us that you are the God who can calm the storms and guide us into everlasting life. We pray that you would do that all by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew's account uh, tells us uh, about following Jesus, and I want, to see, I want us to see two things, and we'll kind of go back and forth between Matthew and the psalm. But Matthew's account, I think, gets at the nature and the mission of following Jesus and the nature and the mission of the church, and that is, first, that Jesus sends us out into storms, and the second thing he does is he shows up in the storms. So first thing is Jesus sends us out into the storms. He sends his disciples into the storm for sure. Look at verse 22 in Matthew again. Uh, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. A better translation for that might be that Jesus compelled them or maybe forced them to get into the boat. So right off the bat we see that the whole idea of separating from Jesus, getting into the boat, and crossing the sea was not the disciples' idea. The disciples are not looking to get some distance from Jesus and go off on their own. And Jesus doesn't ask them if they're ready or if they're comfortable. 
There's no sort of consensus taken. There's no vote that is taken. He just makes them get into the boat and he sends them on their way. And Jesus stays back to dismiss the crowds and then goes to a mountain to pray. And then in verse 24, we read this, that the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, this is not the first time the disciples have been in a boat on a storm in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Back in Matthew uh, chapter 8, right after Jesus teaches them about the cost of following him, the disciples once again get into a boat on the sea and a great storm comes up against them. And they're scared and they're frightened as well. The difference that time was that Jesus was actually with them. He's asleep on the boat, but he's actually with them. And they have to wake him up in order to calm the storm. But now this time, Jesus, Jesus isn't even with them. They seemingly are left alone to face the chaos of the storm that is arising and all these forces that are against them. And it might seem like an oversight oversight by Jesus. It might seem even a little cruel by Jesus to do this to his disciples, but he sends them off into the storm. But throughout Jesus' ministry, almost from the moment he chooses and calls the disciples to follow him, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a storm. And he's preparing them to face a storm without him. There's the political storm that is brewing. Herod is king, and he will do whatever he can to stop any other kings and any other kingdoms from existing. I mean, after all, he's just killed John the Baptist. So there's a political storm. There's also a religious storm that is brewing. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees, they want nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. They think he's dangerous. He's blaspheming God. He's taking the Lord's name in vain. He's breaking the Sabbath time and time again, and Jesus needs to be done away with. But there's also a cosmic storm that is brewing as Jesus is more and more facing the forces of evil and death in the people he's healing, in the sins that he is forgiving, and in the lives that he is rescuing from death. And Jesus, at every turn, every moment he has with his disciples, every parable he teaches, every healing he offers, basically warns his disciples on some level of a coming storm. And so in many ways, the disciples' time with Jesus is preparation for these coming storms, not just the storms that they face on a boat out at sea, but in their world and with the powers that they face in their ministry. And oftentimes this happens here, where we might expect Jesus to shelter his disciples, offer a bit more protection, and maybe Jesus would see what we can see in the reading of this text, that the disciples are just simply not ready to face these storms. Well, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus does not shelter them from the storms, but makes them get into the boat without him and face the storm. And see, all of this is foreshadowing what the nature and the mission of the church will be for the disciples in the boat and for us as those who are trying to be the church in our world and in our day. The church is to move off from the safety and security of the dry ground, out into the tumultuous and chaotic sea of the world. And the disciples will soon have to do it without Jesus being physically present. He's going to be leaving them soon. And they will face greater storms than this. And so this then is one of the great challenges that, uh, that we face, the great challenges of following Jesus, of Christianity in general. We want smooth sailing. Because who's ready for storms in your life? Who's ready to face the storms in the world? 
Despite the inevitability of storms we see in the life of Jesus, and this, despite the accounts the gospel gives us of chaos and storms and conflict the disciples face, and, and all throughout the history of the church and every day and in every age and in every land, what you and I long for, I think if we're honest, is calm waters. It's the basis of our prayers. It's the relationships that we seek. It's what we give our time and attention and our energy to. See, I think if we're honest, it's the God that we desire. The one who puts us on calm seas and promises us smooth sailing. And if we can just push off from the land whenever we are ready, whenever we feel like we're prepared and when we are fit to do it and when we feel like it, then maybe we'll do it. Then maybe we'll follow after Jesus. And we hope that if we do the best that we can, if we stay faithful, if God loves us and if he cares for us, then he's going to give us glassy sea, smooth sailing and success in our endeavors. And of course, the reality is that we, more than anyone else in any other time and place in the history of the world, can get closest to creating these conditions on our own. More than any other people in time and history, we can protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from little, literal storms and weather, for sure, but also for all the proverbial storms and chaos that arises. So as modern people, we're conditioned to expect and desire and even to hope for life that is relatively free of storms. But this passage, as do many others, tell us a different story. It's that as we follow Jesus' commands, as we listen to him, as we spend time with him, as we become more and more like him and, does, and do what he does, as we push off from shore, we should expect to face storms and affliction and trials. This passage is actually telling us to prepare for hurricanes. The storms are coming and you're in a storm whether you want to be or not. The world we live in, while full of beauty and wonder and love and life, is also a place full of conflict and brokenness, stained by sin and rebellion, division and death. And therefore, storms are always looming. And that might not be very comforting to you, that Jesus sends us out in the storms, especially if you find yourself in a very real and significant storm in your own life this morning. And I know many of you do. But it should comfort us because it means that these storms shouldn't be a surprise to us and therefore they're not a surprise to Jesus. And it means that God, because he loves us then, has given us all that we need not only to survive and outlast these storms but to thrive and even to flourish in the midst of them. And that's where the Psalms come in. As we've seen in these early Psalms that we've looked at this summer, David is facing storms of his own. In these early Psalms, David's world is absolutely falling apart. Absalom is out to kill him, and now here in Psalm 11, either his advisors or his enemies, or maybe it's a mixture of both, we really don't know, are kind of mocking him and are telling him, why don't you flee like a little bird back to your mountain? Why don't you run away? Why don't you flee like a little bird to your mountain? In other words, this storm that you're facing, David, it's too much for you to handle. And therefore, David, it's also too much for your God to handle. You should run away, you should flee, and you should find some other refuge, some other shelter to find some sort of peace in. Because it's not in this God, and it's not in, the, in your kingship. And so this is the question that David asks in Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the world is falling apart, what am I going to do? It's the same way to ask if when the storms come, when it seems like your life or your world is turned upside down, what are you going to do? Where are you going to find shelter? In whom 
are you going to find shelter? And Psalm 11 verses 4 through 5 tell us that the storms, among other things, really are tests or more like opportunities to evaluate in our lives what is true and solid in our lives. The storms help us to see what is going to last, but they also help us to tear down the flimsy shelters and false refuges that we so often find and take shelter in when we do face storms. And so that's what David models for us here in Psalm 11. The only refuge we have, the only refuge we seek is in God himself. When the foundations in our world, when the foundations in our culture, when the foundations in our own lives are crumbling, what do you do? Where will you find shelter? David's answer, of course, is God is my refuge. He is the one in whom we seek shelter. So both Matthew 14 and Psalm 11 remind us of the inevitability of storms, that we will face storms because of the chaotic nature of this world. But also because the mission of Jesus, the mission that Jesus gives us is to serve the world, to give ourselves for its healing, to be light in the darkness. And therefore, we're going to face storms. And I want you to know that what I have seen so many of you doing, uh, I've seen so many of you doing this very thing. I've been here just over a year now. And in that time, I've watched so many of you take up this call and follow Jesus into the storms of one another's lives and the storms of the world. You've done it oftentimes not knowing what it's going to cost you, not knowing what to say, not knowing exactly what the outcome is going to be, not even knowing specifically what to say or do in the moment. You've done it knowing only one thing, that you need to show up, that Jesus is actually calling you to move out into the storm. And I see you do it time and time again. And it truly is a beautiful thing. And this is what's happening here in Matthew 14. And that's why we need the Psalms. Because to follow Jesus in the storms means that you will face situations and people and predicaments and powers that you cannot fully understand. That there's no way you can make sense of. And the Psalms anchor us in the reality that God is our refuge, that he is our hope, and that he is our delight. And even in these storms that we face, no matter how large or how small, God is the one who sits enthroned in heaven. And he sees it all, and he knows it all, and he has not left us. But that's only part of the nature of our calling. Seeing the same way that we should expect the storms, that we should, also, we should also expect now to see Jesus showing up in the storms to rescue us and sustain us. And if you notice in Matthew 14, that's exactly what he does in this passage. In Matthew, Matthew tells us that the disciples are all deeply afflicted by the wind and the waves, and they're in bad shape. And Jesus shows up out of nowhere after many hours of facing the storm. Now in the pre-dawn hours of the morning, he shows up. But did you notice that they don't recognize him immediately? I mean, they think he's a ghost. Verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I think this is a really important detail in, in this account that Matthew gives us. The fact that the disciples missed Jesus They don't recognize him as he shows up to rescue them. In fact, Jesus' presence actually compounds and it actually increases their fear as they're facing the storm. And this is the problem with storms. They are disorienting and they're overwhelming. And when we are filled with fear, because we realize we are not in control, we can be looking for God to show up in a certain way, in a certain time, in the certain uh, ways that we expect him to, and we can miss the way he actually does show up. And that's what's happening in this moment with the disciples. Jesus is coming for them. He's coming to rescue them. 
And they don't see it. They've missed him. I don't know what the disciples were expecting. They were probably expecting and hoping that the first thing that would happen was that the winds would calm. The boat would stop rocking. The, the sea would smooth out. And the storm would just finish. And then maybe they could make sense of what was going on. And they could find safety. But Jesus instead comes in the midst of the storm. And he comes walking on the water. See, one of the ways we learn to live in the midst of storms is seeing and knowing how Jesus shows up in the middle of those storms. Not simply waiting for the storms to pass, not simply hunkering down, but seeing that Jesus comes to us in the middle of the storms. He will show up. He promises to show up through the comforting words and presence of a faithful friend, through those willing to come alongside and bear your burdens. He shows up each and every week when we gather together for worship, when we celebrate his meal at this table. So we shouldn't miss him. Don't miss the ways he shows up through the church as we pray and worship together, as we gather in our community groups, as we serve together in our various ministries. Don't miss the ways he shows up in the storm. And the good news is that the one who comes and shows up in the storms is actually the one who can actually overcome the storm. That's the whole point of Jesus walking on the water. When you think, and when we think about Jesus walking on the water, it's not just a cool detail, it's not just a cool trick, it's not just Jesus because uh, he doesn't feel like swimming. He's walking on the water for a purpose. Jesus walks on the water of a raging sea as though it's dry land. And that is a very, very important theological uh, point and tells us about the very nature of who Jesus is. See, in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh who tramples down the sea. He does it in Job. In the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, he makes his paths the mighty waters. And in Habakkuk, when Yahweh comes in judgment, he tramples the seas with his horses. The seas are nothing for Yahweh. In the Old Testament, the one who can conquer the chaos of the sea, that's the one to follow. That's the one who has the power. You should put your trust and hope in him. And now here is Jesus trampling the mighty seas. He's not tiptoeing across the water or walking gingerly, trying not to fall or being bat batted about by the waves. He's trampling the seas. See, the point is that Jesus possesses the same power over the waves, the same authority to walk on the sea and to calm the affliction as does Yahweh. <clears throat> and so he walks on water, not calm water, but stormy, chaotic water, as if it is dry ground. Not only does he show up in the storm, but he can and will conquer the storm. And once the disciples finally see him for, for who he truly is, they see and confess for the first time in Matthew that, he, that this, this at last is the Son of God. He is the one who comes in the storm and in the midst of our fears and the calamity in our world and says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he can say it because he is the one with the power. He is the one who can protect. He is the one who, who will deliver us from all of these storms. See, the Psalms help us to believe and trust in God's power. Because over and over again, the Psalms confess, as they do in Psalm 11, that the Lord is in control and that he's not overwhelmed. See, now Peter and Matthew takes all this to heart, as Peter does in the Gospels. He hears Jesus, he sees him, and he does not want to fear. Tell me not to fear, tell me not to be afraid. Okay, I'm not going to be afraid. And so he says, okay, if it's you, Jesus, then command me to come to you on the water. So Peter walks on water towards Jesus. And Peter makes it some distance. But when the wind and the waves get too much, he begins to sink and he cries out to the Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out to grab him and saves him. And Jesus says to Peter, you of little faith, 
Why do you doubt? See, Peter wasn't quite ready for this kind of storm. He wasn't ready also for this kind of power that Jesus holds. But for Peter, for all of Peter's doubts and fears that overwhelm him, he still for a moment walks on water. Even in the midst of his fear, he still walks on water. In other words, he shares in Jesus' power. Even if it's just for a moment, as he casts his eyes on Jesus, Peter too tramples the mighty seas. And all this happens because Jesus shows up in the storm. He always does. And he always will. In fact, the only one who gets left alone in the storm, the only one who's ever abandoned, the only one who is ever left to sink in the midst of waves and chaos of the world, it's Jesus himself. He must face the storms of death and division and hell on his own, separated from his father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he faces that storm so that he will never, so that we will never be alone, so that we will never be forsaken, so that we can know that Jesus always shows up in the midst of our storms. Jesus will come through darkness, through chaos, through storms. He will come to you as he did to his disciples. And in the midst of that chaos, he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. The storms of time do calm. They will relent. And when they do, we will see that Jesus has been with us, carrying us and guiding us and conquering the storms. Psalm 11 ends with the promise that the upright will see, shall see and behold the very face of God. See, David is reminding himself and he's reminding us that what we really need in our lives and, and what we really need, certainly in the storms that we face, is the knowledge of God's presence. Knowing and believing that he is here, we need to see God's face. And in Jesus, we have that promise that the very one who stands out, in, that sends us out into the storms of the world, the very one who casts us off into the boat, sends us off into world and conversations and people and to trouble and to, and to realms that we simply cannot make sense of or simply do not understand, the one who sends us out is also the one who is with us, who shows up. And he will never forsake us, but he will guide us. So we rest in the fact that in these storms that we face, that there's nothing to fear. That Jesus leaves you not to destroy you, but to strengthen your faith. Not for you to learn how to go out on your own, but to learn in new and fresh ways how to live with greater dependence upon him. How to delight in him, how to seek joy even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of conflicts and storms. Because he is the Lord of the storm. So don't miss him in the storm. Fix your eyes upon him, not on the waves, not on the storms that surround you, but upon him. And there's no better way, there's no better opportunity for us to practice this and to prepare for a new ministry year ahead and prepare for our life together as we enter out into, a, into these new ministry endeavors than to gather at this table. Because it's here that we have the promise and we celebrate the promise that Jesus actually sends us out into the world, into the storms that we cannot see and cannot make sense of, but he promises to be with us. That's what he's doing with his disciples when he feeds them. He's about to leave them at the Last Supper. But he says, in a sense, even though I'm leaving you, I'm always going to be with you. I'm giving my very self for your sake so you will be strengthened, you'll be nourished, and that you will be able to see and know that I am the one who can trample the seas. I'm the one who can conquer all the storms, and I'm the one who's going to deliver you. I am always watching, I'm always guiding, and I will equip you for the very thing I've called you to do. That's what we do here at this supper. That's what we celebrated in this bread and this cup. 
that we partake of together. So let's pray as we uh, ask God to be with us. Our great and heavenly Father, we thank you that you send us out into the storms of the world. And even as you do, you promise to be with us, to guide us. You are the one who conquers the storms. And so I pray that uh, as you send us out for the sake of the world, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would give us eyes to see the ways that you are working in our world and one another's lives and in our own lives. And at this meal, you would nourish us and sustain us and guide us so we can show a watching and hurting world the very place where we can seek refuge and hope and life, which is in you and you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.